Well, other than the Sermon on the Mount, the parables of Jesus, which, Lord willing, I'll be preaching from for the next several weeks, the parables of Jesus in Matthew, Jesus uses this form to teach perhaps his most famous words. Many of you might know a lot naturally about Jesus' own teaching from the parables that you've either heard or have seen maybe in movie form or have uh, heard from a lesson, and for good reason, though maybe not what you think. A lot of us seem to know parables, but often not because of why they were intended for us to know them. If you've got a Bible, you can scan around, starting in chapter 13, and notice that, that here lies some familiar passages from Jesus, things about soil, or on and on they could go. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you can probably also look around at these paragraphs and, and see that through some of these words, though you don't claim Jesus as your Lord, you're slightly accustomed to, or you've heard or maybe had preached to you or taught to you some of the lessons or principles from these passages in the words of other people. Like, even if you're not from Oklahoma, you may know a couple of songs from the musical Oklahoma, you know, just because you're, you're a human. Like, who ha- like, if you're not here, or if you're here and you're not from Oklahoma, uh, somehow you know the song Oklahoma. And in many ways, like parables, all of us seem to know, even though we may have not been raised in the church or around Christianity for a while, parables are commonly heard instructions. And we see that Jesus methodically takes things that are, uh, we're accustomed to and turns them into lessons for his people. Now, Jesus taught often in what's called didactic terms. He preached sermons, lots of them. And within them, Jesus preached these sermons using examples and illustrations and quotes from Old Testament scrolls. He even used logical methods to come to conclusions. But pretty abruptly, in the book of Matthew, Matthew records Jesus pretty abruptly now speaking exclusively in parables for for a long while. He goes from these sermons, he goes from these rebukes, he goes from these clearly understood principles of what he's talking to, and then abruptly he goes into parables. Lots of them. Now remember that each of our Gospels are recording a coherent, historical, and accurate portrayal of Jesus and his own life. And most of us think that, that the parables are doing something in particular. So we see that Matthew is recording something that we're supposed to be taking as true, but now we have these parables that seem to either distract us or mesh things together that seem to not be as clear as they once were. Most of us think that parables are doing something in particular. If you're not a Christian here, you think that parables are just teaching you lessons, and you're right. If you are a Christian here, you might think that he's using a rhetorical device, like you might see used... Uh, other people use drama or illustrations or comedy in order to capture your attention in a certain way. You know, you would talk to a three-year-old very differently than you would talk to a 50-year-old PhD in engineering, right? There, there are just different things that you use, different ways that you speak in order to prove a point. Now, I've often heard that when it comes to, to preaching in a modern-day church, we, we should speak more like Jesus, you know, you know, they say, we spend all of our time in boring, long sermons. Well, Jesus spoke in parables. He used props. Uh, he used drama. Well, first of all, no, he didn't. He's not like Carrot Top, or he's not like an Apple launch uh, for a new device. He is speaking in parables, but for a purpose. And oftentimes this purpose isn't what we think that they are. And what is that purpose? Why did Jesus all of a sudden transition from sermons to parables? 
Why speak in parables? Why would the Son of God, who can stop a storm with one word, cast out a demon with one word, heal a woman with one touch, why now speak in parables which seem to obscure things? Well, his parables serve to explain one thing, the nature of his kingdom. And that's what he'll be doing again and again in these different passages, these different parables going on that Matthew will record and other gospel writers will record. He is trying to portray in ways that those who have ears to hear can understand what the kingdom will be like. But how do these parables explain the kingdom of God to us today? In a word, people who were following Jesus were surprised at how he spoke. He was different than their expectations of the Messiah. When he was talking about the kingdom of God, that sounded different than what they thought the kingdom of God would sound like. When he was portraying himself as the very son of God, the Messiah who they've been waiting for, they were looking at him and going, yes, but we had something else in mind. His purpose seemed different too. And the kingdom that they were promised through this long-awaited Messiah, that's appearing a little bit different according to Jesus' own words. So Matthew records in brilliant form the kingdom of God as revealed through Jesus when he speaks to them in parables. Now today... You heard that my sermon will cover verses 1 through 23 in part. My sermon today will cover verses 10 through 17, and then we'll come back next week, Lord willing, and cover those uh, two facing, that one parable of two facing instructions surrounding this passage. So we'll, we'll start in verse 10 today, and next week we'll come back to verse 1. But what Matthew does in long form in verses 1 through 23, remember, these, these gospel writers, they are, they are recording things not just verse by verse, but oftentimes in units, sometimes smaller units, sometimes larger units. But what Matthew seems to be doing here is speak to the power of God's sovereignty and word in summoning people to his kingdom. So what these parables, and especially this first one, the pair of the soils, that'll be next week, it is portraying God's kingdom as powerful, and it comes to his people by his very word. And that, within that, are several verses of people going, wait, what? Or, why are you (laughs) using parables? You seem to be so clear, and now you're not so clear. He gives them a parable. They question why he's speaking in parables. And then he explains that parable. It's a long set of verses that serve a lot of courses to a large meal, and instead of preaching a 90-minute sermon, I figure, why not two, separated by seven days? So I want you to see why Jesus says he's speaking in parables today, and then we'll come back to several weeks of those actual parables. If you've been keeping count, (laughs) there are four parables up to this point in Matthew so far. The next third of all the parables in the book of Matthew all come within Matthew chapter 13. So Matthew, the writer of this, is clearly doing something. Jesus had these little pithy parables along the way, and then boom, you can't overlook these significant parables, seven of them in Matthew chapter 13. So it's significant, and there's reasoning to Matthew's flow. He's not just randomly throwing things together to give us lessons. To our text, though, the disciples were perplexed by Jesus' use of parables. They were puzzled. Because the style of parable is not like using a prop or an illustration. Uh, It's not actually intended to make things more clear to the audience at large. It's like he's trying to make his message intentionally unclear to some people while making it clear to others. And so, in clear form, he speaks to them in parables. And I I think it shows us, this text shows us, that he's speaking to, to us in parables for three reasons. And that'll serve as the outline of my sermon. He gives three reasons when they ask him, why are you doing this? 
And he says, let me tell you. So the first reason that he gives us and why he's speaking in parables is because he is speaking in parables as a form of condemnation. By using parables, he is, he is actually condemning part of the crowd who is listening to him. Here again from verses 10 through 12 of the text. And the disciples came to him and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered and said to them, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall still be taken away from him. Here Jesus says that parables are a speaker's form of judgment on those who do not believe the gospel. That the reason why, in part, he is now preaching to them in parables is because he is judging them for their rejection of him. Remember, Jesus is divisive. We've seen that over and over again. He is a divisive person. His gospel, his message, is a divisive message. The gospel divides people into two groups, two camps. Those who receive it and those who reject it. You're either in one or the other. There's no intermediate state. There's no third group of people. Jesus points out that you're either receiving or rejecting his gospel. Think again about what he is saying in verses 10 through 12. People heard Jesus speak. And in response to now this new format of speaking, they asked him, why are you speaking in parables? Why do you have to speak like that? Now, in their defense, he previously spoke in sermon form and through discourse, but where his words were very clear and very direct. You've heard, but I say. On and on he would go. But now he speaks in long, detailed parables that seem in their minds to be a little bit coy. You know, it's like you, you finally, and in my case, and maybe in your all's case, uh, any church I've been in, you're, you're, like, you're like inviting your friend to church, and you just really hope that it's not that one church service where everything is kind of weird. You know, why did we sing those weird songs today when my friend came? Why was that sermon about those weird parts of Leviticus when my friend finally came, right? They're wondering why all of a sudden it seems to be very different. And now he speaks to them in long, detailed parables. And so they ask him, why speak this way? Now, hang on. Their question isn't, though, about just the format of him speaking, but about his use of insider language, insider overtones. Have you ever been around people who can use language in such a way that you are almost left out of the convo on purpose? You know, when those of you with young kids, you spell things so that alarm bells won't go on, you know, or, or like Brooke and I, when it's time to take our dog on a W-A-L-K, our dog doesn't know what that means. But if one of us accidentally says, I want to go on a walk, the dog's day is ruined because all he wants to do is go on a walk. So we will obscure things on purpose. Or Brooke's dad and Brooke's brother, my brother-in-law, her dad was a businessman and her brother is a corporate attorney. And when they get together on holidays and talk in front of me, I, I'm not a moron, but I have no idea what they are talking about when they start talking towards each other. And then often they will look at each other, they'll finish, and then they'll look at me, and I'm like, I'm kind of just here for the food. I don't really know, <laughs> like, I appreciate taxing and tariffs and whatever, but it is 12, so. <laughs> now, to some degree, to some degree, they knew that Jesus was speaking in a way that was doing many things, but Jesus tells them why in verses 11 and 12. He gives a couple of reasons for this. First of all, he gives a little context as to why he is speaking in parables. Please hear and see this because it's a precise picture of the nature and the work of Jesus. Jesus' words are intended to first encourage his own disciples. 
Jesus' words, though to the world may seem obscure, are intended to encourage his own disciples. The first thing that he says to his disciples in response to their question is, to you, it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. That is intentionally encouraging to them. God, why are you speaking in such a way? And he says, because I've given you understanding of who I am. Why speak in miracles? Because I want you, disciples, to know that you know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. I gave you knowledge. Parables are revealing to the elect, to the saints, to the people of God, that he wants his people to first recognize that they have been granted, they have been given ability to understand truths about the kingdom of heaven and the Messiah. Now, friend, your understanding of the gospel is a gift. It is a continual gift by God. Be encouraged that your presence here, your your fellowship with other Christians, their, their acceptance of your friendship, their giving of love to you and receiving of your love, that's not because of your deficiency, nor is it because of your personal glory. I remember being told by a pastor in a church that I was a member of in college, and I was being canceled by this guy, and I was, I was ripping off in um, one of our times together. I was ripping off about how good of a week I had. You know, I was, I was kind of trying to justify myself as like being alive and, and being worthy of his time. And he leaned over, leaned really close, felt really awkward, but he leaned really close, and he said, Asher, I need you to know that I'm not your pastor, and I don't love you like a brother because of anything you have ever done. And then he said, to be honest, I'm not impressed with you at all. <laughs> it's supposed to be counseling. You know? <laughs> and remember, he said, that God didn't save you because he was impressed by you either or convinced to love you. Jesus specifically died on a cross because God already loved you. Now, man is responsible. Man is called to believe. Man is spoken to and said, repent and turn and call out to me as the Lord. But seeing the kingdom, understanding the kingdom, embracing the kingdom, friend, that has been granted to you. Left to your own, you would never understand it. And what he is doing, he is encouraging these people when when they hear this teaching and light bulbs go off in their head and be like, oh, when the prodigal son returns, that talks about a loving father. I get that. And he's going, yes, because it's your story. Friends, notice the care that Jesus communicates to his disciples. Why did Jesus speak in parables? Because he wants them to hear them and go, he's talking about his love for me. Now the second, still within point one. One, the second reason he gives his disciples and why he speaks in parables, Jesus says that he is intentionally provocative. He says to them, to you it has been granted, but to them it has not been granted. Now, without going into a a theological debate, which I'm very happy to do so, just not in this venue right here, please hear me and please hear all historic Orthodox Christianity. Those words are not the words of any theologian. Those words are the words of Christ. To you it has been granted. To you it has been given. But to them it has not been given. It has not been granted. This this literal word, grant, given, this literal word from the Lord means that the ability to know God in Christ was given or granted or bestowed by God to man 
by Christ. To deny this is actually denying the giver. To try and soften this for the sake of wanting our own choice is to demean the giver. You can choose to not like this form of bestowal, but that doesn't change what Jesus said in direct form. To you it has been given, and to them it has not been given. In verse 12, though, Jesus speaks to them about this through a proverbial form. It says in verse 12, For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken from him. Jesus answers their question, why? By telling them the people have rejected his clear teaching. Why is he speaking in parables? Well, in part because they've rejected me. Day by day, all over Galilee, the scores of sermons they would have heard, the plenty of multi- the multitude of miracles they would have seen, the understanding of who he was and what he was doing, that, that, was, that was given to them in physical form. And they rejected it still. You see, parables are in part condemnation because many rejected his teaching. And what's haunting is now he takes away their ability to hear it. That is, the, that is the danger within the text here that Jesus is so clear about. And so he now speaks to them in parables to confound them because their hearts are stubborn and unbelief. They have, they have refused to believe that he is the Messiah. They refuse to embrace the gospel of the kingdom of heaven and in condemning form, he speaks to them in veiled, you can see it, veiled sayings and proverbs. One theologian says Jesus' parables are judgment on unbelief of all in Israel who refuse to believe in him. Him speaking in parables is an indictment on their rejecting him. He deliberately pulls the curtain, not back, but now he pulls the curtain to be closed from their eyes. Friend, if you're here today and you don't understand the gospel, if you're here today and you read these parables and you just go, I don't know what you're talking about. If you're here today and you are confused or befuddled, not amazed at, but just confused at at how the gospel works or what Jesus is doing in prayer, ask God to reveal himself to you from his word. Friends, ask God to make himself clear to you. Only he can make himself clear to you. I can't convince you our friends cannot do enough to make all this work. You have to be given the gift of God, of his truth, bestowing your heart to where you call out to him. But ask him. Do not carry on in confusion. Do not carry on in rejecting him. Ask him, friend, to reveal his truth to you. And what our word says is that if you ask him to make himself clear to you, Our scriptures say he very much will. You can count on that. I think for all of us, though, as an aside, we need to recognize kind of the pattern of of history, and especially Christian history as it's gone on throughout the world. We need to recognize that history has shown itself again and again, the absence of God's truth being proclaimed, I think possibly as God giving a judgment on those particular people. As, as you've seen, if you look at maps or world history or whatever, as you, have you seen the movements of Christianity ebb and flow, even within this county, within this country, within different parts of the world? I think it's, I think it's honest to see that, that sometimes those absence of God's proclamation being clear or received, that part is God's judgment on those people. A couple of months ago, and you've heard me talk about it just once, but some of you in private form more often, I began rehearing about a particular ministry in Scotland uh, where they're aiming to plant churches in the projects through Scotland. And I heard about it first, maybe eight years ago, but 
It really stuck out to me in a couple of months ago while texting several of my pastor friends. And what's been amazing to us is this, this ministry seems really cool. All they're trying to do is go into the different uh, projects of Scotland. They're called schemes. But go in there and bit by bit plant a church in each of these schemes all throughout Scotland. And what's amazing is you think about that and you're like, wait, Scotland. Scotland needs churches? Scotland for the longest period of time was, was the spiritual bastion of Christianity. It, w- it was the most uh, available form to hear gospel preaching was in Scotland. And now Scotland is only 3% professing evangelicals. Scotland, if you don't know, used to be an absolute power when it came to gospel preaching. All of us are influenced by particular theologians, and I guarantee you, all of them were influenced by theologians from Scotland. And now, you can't go on a train ride and find a confessing evangelical church. I have that in the back of my mind while also I, spending too much time on Instagram, scrolling through Instagram and Twitter, and if you have Instagram, you know the the brilliant ability of them putting uh, videos or photos in your face that you normally don't think, oh, I wouldn't have Googled that, but wow, I love that. And one of the things I see again and again are, are clips of preachers and sermons. And I'm often saddened, and I don't mean this to sound so judgmental, but I am, I am sad at how few churches want, demand, sound, accurate, scripturally saturated preaching from the Bible by qualified men. If you look at If you look at what is popular and available today, it is crap. And how do we not see that and recognize, is this not God's judgment on his people? And we need to pray that we would have ears that hear. And our friends down the road, all the churches that we pass by, we pray for them to have ears that will hear. We pray that their preaching would go strong. We pray that their membership would go strong. We pray that they would plant churches and seek the lost through their various pulpits. Because all around us there is no Christ no crucifixion, no resurrection, no call to repentance or holiness, no desire for sanctification or discipline, no hope in the coming of a Messiah who carries a sword, but rather some of these sermons could be preached equally in a synagogue, equally in a mosque, or equally in a corporate boardroom. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 10, if you've got a copy of the Bible, Romans chapter 10. We see some of the tension of this being played out. Not used to the Bible. We're in Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Romans chapter 10. The chapter is the big number at the, within the page, and the verse number, go to verse number 13, the tiny little numbers within a page. We, we kind of see this, this indictment on people being played out, but this time in reverse form. It says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What a sweet thing that is. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him who they haven't believed? How will they believe in him who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So you think about this, this trajectory of if God is completely sovereign, what do we have to do? Well, these preachers need to be sent. These preachers need to not just be sent, but they need to go preach. They need to preach to people who need to hear the gospel. And it is clear in Scripture that God will summon people to himself in salvation when they hear the word of God and repent and believe. And then we see at the end of verse 15, this this portrayal of how sweet this picture is, how beautiful are the feet 
of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Paul says, indeed, they have. And Jesus says on our passage, they saw, they heard, and now the veil comes down because they rejected me. Now, I don't know about you, but these particular verses, first, they overwhelm me at the mere grace and overwhelming grace of Christ. He sought me and bought me. How, the song says, and answers, by his redeeming blood. The doctrine of election, the doctrine of God's effectual call, the doctrine of God regenerating a dead heart and giving it breath, those doctrines are doctrines of humility from our standpoint. Those doctrines are doctrines of humbleness. We did not run out of a burning building. We were snatched from a fire because of God's love. You stand before him once condemned, but now you are robed in the righteousness of his son, which was purchased for you in his own death. Jesus said, to you it has been given. What a joyful thing to hear from him with, with the ears of a sinner like us. And may we be thankful. He uses parables to judge unbelief. He uses parables to condemn people. But second, in our passage, he uses these parables as a fulfillment of prophecy. Second reason he uses parables is as prophetic revealing. I trust you see the parables are prophetically revealing in, in verses 13 through 15. Here, Jesus in long form actually quotes from the book of Isaiah. Jesus wants his disciples to understand parables through the lens. So he's wanting them to understand his teaching through the lens of the Old Testament prophecy. Remember, the disciples were expecting the kingdom by one way, and Jesus shows them that his kingdom is different. Jesus gets more specific in verses 13 and 15 of how he, his kingdom actually operates. He says, because many don't understand the miracles they see, nor embrace the truth he teaches, that this is the prophecy of Isaiah being fulfilled. Because they have seen and heard, yet not understood and believed, he says God will judge them in fulfillment of prophecy by speaking to them with veiled words. He knows this will stun his disciples, though. The disciples were expecting Jesus' kingdom to arrive like a steamroller. For there would be uh, thousands of conversions to Christ. For there people would wave branches and accept him. For Gentiles to stream into Jerusalem and praise him for the kingdom to be set up. And yet Jesus stands there saying, many in my generation will reject me. And Jesus knows that this will confuse his disciples, so he says, look at my ministry. My ministry is actually going to be just like Isaiah's. And so flip back to Isaiah chapter 6, if you've got a Bible. Isaiah chapter 6, it's to the right of the Proverbs uh, in the Psalms. It's easy to kind of open up the Bible halfway through and get yourself there, but it's to the right of those. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Well, you typically will read uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and even get on to verse 8, and it's such an encouraging mark of this man saying, woe is he in responding to God's holiness, that to the point that even verse 8 or verse 9 become like a missions verse, a missions mission verse, where Isaiah says, here I am, send me. But it's not a missions verse. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 on, offers some puzzling things that we often overlook. 
because they don't appear like we want them to appear. And I want you to note that Isaiah's commission, after Isaiah said, okay, Lord, send me, what's my message? The Lord said, okay, here it is, go tell the people, but they won't hear you, they won't listen to you, and they won't understand you. They won't grasp what you're saying, but still tell them that if you believe on me, I will spare you from your sins. (laughs) And you can imagine Isaiah uh, to that evangelistic response that the Lord had given him, saying, Lord, can't you uh, give me a more positive message? Or maybe can't you give me a more effective message? But no, God says that he should preach to them. says, Isaiah, preach to them that they've been stubborn, stubborn. That prophet after prophet has preached to them judgment and condemnation because they rejected my truth. And I will be done with calling out to him. Now, in our case, back to Matthew, Jesus here quotes from Matthew or Isaiah chapter 6. Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to be the same in my preaching ministry as it was in Isaiah's. Friends, I want you to see the heart. As it naturally is, it is naturally darkened by sin that he re- to such a way that the heart just naturally rejects the gospel. Just like children of Israel reject their prophets. Just like how your own children first learn the word before mom or dad, they learn the word. No. We are conditioned to reject things that are good for us. Now notice the carefulness of Matthew 13, verse, 13, verse 14. Look there in Matthew And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. He doesn't just say that it has been fulfilled. He says, in them, or in their case, in the case of the people who are hearing Jesus speak right then and there, the prophecy of Isaiah is now being fulfilled. Imagine Jesus saying to his disciples that the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled because then and there, the people are rejecting the glorious message of the kingdom by the mouth of of the Messiah, just like the way Israel rejected Isaiah. They heard the word of truth and they rejected it. Jesus is showing that it is not because of the lack of his own glory. It is not because of the lack of his own power. It is not because of the lack of Jesus' own effectiveness of his message. That's not what's keeping people away from embracing his own truth. They are embracing they are, they are rejecting his own truth rather than embracing it because their own hearts are darkened and grow more dark. They are corrupted by sin. They hate God, the scriptures say. And the Isaiah quote should remind us, you, of the problem of unbelief. It lies in the heart of man. It is not that you are not convinced. It is not that you have not been given enough evidence. It is not that you have not seen enough things. Man's deepest problem lies within man himself. C.H. Spurgeon says that our heart is our greatest enemy. St. Augustine had posted on his wall where he did a lot of his writing, from myself, save me, O God. And Jesus reminds us by quoting Isaiah that we are our own enemies and we must call out for him to grant us understanding lest we never understand. Now finally, well, Jesus uses parables to judge unbelief, but then he also uses parables as a fulfillment of his prophecy, but then finally he uses parables to show the pure grace of the gospel. He uses parables, this is is really why all of us think that he uses parables, but don't forget the other two. He uses parables uh, 
to illuminate our hearts and to have us better grasp the, the beauty and the glory, the amazement that we should have when we see the gospel. In verses 16 through 17, Jesus gives the final reason for why he speaks in parables. Through parables, he reminds his disciples again of the blessing that they've been given, the, the spiritual sight which the Lord gave them. Through this, it alone is astounding. But within this, you and I, Christian, must see more fully the glory of the gospel being revealed to us. Look at his words in verses 16 and 17. But blessed are your eyes because they see, your ears because they hear. For truly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Parables are illuminating. Because a disciple understands them. Uh, Spurgeon also says that when a Christian reads a parable, they have, quote, learned the great secret. The counsel of the Lord has been revealed to them. They are blessed. They are under the gospel. They are made to know what the greatest and best of men, what those under the law could not discover. More truth is seen in, in a Christian who is understanding a parable than even the best saints who went before them. Friends, remind yourself of the clarity of the gospel and the cross that you and I see and can understand on a regular basis. Remember, but before that, before Jesus died on a cross and rose from the grave in order to save you from your sins, remember the thousands of years before that where people like Abraham were hoping in a coming Messiah. Isaiah was hoping to see this servant. David was hoping to see this king. And, and what do you think that they will see when they get to heaven? And what do you think we get to bask in every single day? The glory of the cross, the glory of his resurrection, the glory of the gospel. We can see it. And Jesus says, here are, here are many ways that you can see it. You can see it through this. You can see it through that. You can see it through this. You can see the truth of the gospel everywhere. Let me just use these common things like a field or like a wedding. Friends, in part, parables illuminate truth about Christ to the unbeliever because the Spirit has already regenerated the heart of Christ or the heart to Christ. Parables illuminate truth about Christ to the believer because the Spirit has already regenerated the heart to Christ. So for the disciples, these parables were not confusing sayings. They were worried about their friends not understanding them, but they weren't confused by them. They were, saying, they were sayings filled with truth because they had heard the explanation of the parables from the Messiah himself. Even when the parables were blessings to them, just like they are blessings to us. That's why you look down at these parables and you scratch your head, and, and it's okay to do that if you're, if you're wondering, like, okay, like next week we'll talk about these four soils, and you're like, wait, what's that third soil? Don't panic and be like, am I a Christian at all? No, doing the dig, you know, dig... The hard work, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Do the hard work, you know, dig, I don't know, not a farmer. Um, do the hard work in trying to understand why Jesus used these things that he used because they are intentionally used by him to illuminate his glory within your own heart. The parables are to be blessings to us. We're to look at these and understand, but we're to look at these and enjoy where the answer is crystal clear. It's clear because God in his grace has granted you understanding. It's clear because he has revealed it to you. Now, in conclusion, the disciples are 
also blessed because Jesus says that they have been granted to see something that even the prophets had not been granted. That's what the last couple of verses are alluding to. You think about it. We're able to see, see things in fullness, what people of the Old Testament were just hoping in. Abraham, Moses, David, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ruth. They had longed to see the things that the disciples had. God had not granted to show those things to them yet because at the right time he would come and reveal them. But do you realize the privilege that you and I have on a regular basis? I want you to think for a moment. Abraham, the friend of God, did not see the revelation of God's grace and love which you and I see. Take that in on your drive home. Abraham could not sing with understanding the way that you and I can sing in Christ alone or the old rugged cross. He saw it veiled, though he was drawn towards it because of God's good work. He longed to see it, though it was from a distance, yet God revealed it to you in a way far beyond Abraham or Isaiah or Jacob or Moses or David. Do you see this privilege, friend? Do you sing like you see this privilege? Do you pray like you actually have tasted and heard of the glory of the gospel? Do you realize the pure richness of God's love in this revealing way toward you? And the Lord has granted it to us to see him. Friend, I hope that you appreciate this. I hope that whenever we hear the gospel, whenever we hear one of these parables, the, the amount of like, joy and busting out from in us is what, what grown men will do at a football game. If you want to see me lose my mind, it is the OSU fight song after they beat someone. It's not even a good fight song, but I will scream it at the top of my lungs. I will lose my voice. And friends, we hear and see the kingdom of God as given to us in Christ. Do you sense the glory of our position, redeemed? Do you sense the responsibility that that privilege entails, worship and living on mission for the sake of his glory? Do you realize the privilege that we have and have we embrace the gospel in all of our lives? Friends, the call of this text, what do you do with this text? The call for us is to live and enjoy because the gospel has been granted to us. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that you are clear in your word about your love for your people. We pray that we would respond this week and every week, in every conversation, and every moment we can worship you. We pray that we would respond with joy, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of delight, knowing that we have tasted and we have seen because you have broken and provided for us. O oh Lord, our Lord, you are majestic. You are good and kind and gracious to us. We pray that you would lift us up to behold your glory more deeply. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.